Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 52 of Destination Disaster. I am your host, Devin Carney. Conflict has cast a dark and oppressive shadow over the Horn of Africa for decades, leaving millions in the path of violence and without a home and without a sustainable source of food. Instead of bouncing around this region, discussing local conflicts, we're going to discuss a civil war that has been raging for the last 40 years and has multiple evolutions from a local conflict to one that now involves the Islamic terrorist groups such as Al-Qaeda and Al-Shabaab. The Somali civil war erupted following political instability following Somalia's loss and the Ogaden War. I think in order for this episode to make better sense, we first need to begin covering the coup that would lead to the military ruling Somalia for well over 20 years. So let's go ahead and jump into the content for the week. The 1969 Somali coup was the complete takeover of the Somali government by Major General Syed Barr, who led the Gendarmerie, or Military Law Enforcement Group. The coup was bloodless, but did involve the use of tanks and soldiers to seize government buildings and to remove government officials from those offices. Somali troops, supported by tanks under the command of Bar, stormed Mogadishu and seized key government buildings and ordered the resignation of the country's leaders. The coup deposed President Sheikh Mukhtar Mohammed Hussein and Prime Minister Mohammed Agal and led to the 21-year-long military rule by Bar and the imposition of an authoritarian government in Somalia until 1991. Beginning in late 1980, Somali armed forces would begin to clash with small regional rebel groups who opposed the rule of Bar's military government. Ultimately, these clashes would lead to Bar's military rule being overthrown. Following the collapse of the government, these same factions would fight for power, leading to the civil war that you see to this very day. Various armed factions began competing for influence in the power vacuum and turmoil that followed, particularly in the South. In 1990-1992, customary law temporarily collapsed due to the fighting. Following Somalia's loss in the Ogaden War against Ethiopia, this loss led to an immense distrust in Mar's government among the general public, and in 1986, Syed Barr was critically injured following a car accident, forcing him to be transported to Saudi Arabia for treatment and leaving his lieutenant general, Muhammad Ali Samatar, in command. Barr did return in time for the elections. However, the damage and distrust had already been dealt, and several smaller factions began engaging smallly armed forces, ultimately leading to the Barr government being overthrown. During this period of conflict, food was not a scarce commodity as it is today. Instead, these factions would store away the food and use it as a weapon. According to a paper written by Caleb Carr titled The Consequences of Somalia, the various armed clans would use food as a weapon. Very quickly, however, it became clear that starvation and its attendant malaises were not causes of the strife in Somalia, but weapons in the civil war. For in fact, there was no shortage of food and relief supplies in the country. 
The population was suffering because various armed clans saw those supplies merely as additional tools in which to slaughter their enemies. Not through use, but through deprivation. Throughout history, food has long been an instigator of violence. Because food is the one thing we all need. And what happens when starvation begins to set in? Desperation. In fact, one year after the Somali Civil War began, a famine emerged in Somalia, primarily caused by Syed Bar's army. The famine was a combination of drought and a seven-month military occupation of the area by three divisions of Syed Bar's army. The former president had moved his headquarters from the Ghetto region, that is the G-E-D-O region, to Baidoa on September 15, 1991, to prepare for a military reoccupation of Mogadishu seven months later. Meanwhile, his soldiers plundered grain stores in this agricultural area, destroying pumps and implements in their wake. Farming came to a standstill. Bar's army of occupation did not leave the area until April 22, 1992. On the road to Wanlei Wayne, it suffered its initial defeat at Idid's hands before retreating rapidly to the Kenya border. Its seven-month occupation left villages upon villages of destitute farming communities. It took three months for the impact of growing mass starvation to hit the world's television screens. As I always say, war is absolute hell. And when you take the one thing that everyone relies on to use it as a weapon shows truly how evil those forces are. There is a reason why the United Nations deem this to be a war crime. Because you are no longer fighting with an opposing force, you are now making the general public suffer at a time when their lives are already at more risk. Due to this blatant use of starvation as a tool, UNISOM, or the United Nations operations in Somalia, was the direct military response to that. The first phase of UNISOM was accepted by rebel leaders in an effort to uphold the ceasefire and to begin allowing humanitarian aid to begin flowing into the most severely affected regions once again. Initially, 50 peacekeeping troops were sent to the region to monitor the ceasefire, and fairly early on, it was shown to be an ineffective mission with fighting and violence continuing. While 3,000 additional troops were proposed to respond to the continued violence, most were never sent. Over the final quarter of 1992, the situation in Somalia continued to deteriorate. Factions on Somalia were splintering into smaller factions and splintering again. Agreements for food distribution with one party were worthless when the stores had to be shipped through the territory of another. Some elements were actively opposing the UNISOM intervention. Troops were shot at, aid ships attacked and prevented from docking, cargo aircraft were fired upon, and aid agencies, public and private, were subject to threats, robbery, and extortion. Meanwhile, hundreds, if not thousands, of poverty-stricken refugees were starving to death every day. By November 1992, General Mohamed Farah Idid had grown confident enough to formally defy the Security Council and demand the withdrawal of peacekeepers, as well as declaring hostile intent against any further UN deployments. Clearly, the situation was only continuing to deteriorate further on the ground as violence turned to peacekeepers trying to provide humanitarian aid on the ground. With little options, the Security Council ultimately agreed and allowed the United States to head the newly designated UNITAF, or the Unified Task Force, in November 1992. UNITAF was composed of forces from 24 different countries, with the vast bulk contributed by the United States. UNITAF soon secured the relief operations which were being coordinated and carried out by UNISOM, which was also attempting to negotiate a political end to the conflict. Indeed, although UNISOM had been replaced with, by UNITAF, it was still technically in operation and would remain ready to resume its function when UNITAF had met its goal of creating a secure environment for humanitarian relief. The Secretary General convened a meeting in early 1993 in which 14 important Somalia political and rebel factions agreed to hand over all of their weapons to UNITAF 
and Unisom, and over $130 million was pledged by donors at an aid conference that year to assist in reconstruction. However, Somalia continued to stumble, and in March, the UN decided to transform the UNITAF mission into what would become known as Unisom II. While Unisom II was primarily established to assist in the restoration of infrastructure, a representative government, and disarming various factions, this phase would only lead to further distrust between Somali and UN peacekeeping forces on the ground. Two key incidents would lead to full-on combat operations between UN forces and the Somali National Alliance, or SNA for short. The first would be the Kismayo incident. Pro-Bar faction members actively smuggled arms through the port city of Kismayo, which at this time was under active control by UNITAF forces. Pro-Bar forces would engage UNITAF forces in an attempt to reclaim the city. While the Addis Ababa conference was in progress in March, the Somali National Front pro-Bar faction that was opposed to Idid began to infiltrate weapons into the Somali port city of Kismayo, which was under the control of UNITAF forces at the time. General Horsey Morgan, commander of the SNF, drove out the Somali National Alliance forces under the command of Colonel Omar Jess. On May 7th, three days after UNISOM II took control of Kismayo from UNITAF, the SNA made an attempt to retake the city. During the assault, the Belgian peacekeepers stationed in the town intervened, considering the assault to take Kismayo and attack on their positions, and consequently repelled the SNA forces. The fall of Kismayo to General Morgan infuriated the Somali National Alliance. To the SNA, the incident was viewed as blatant UN partiality, as UNITAF had failed to prevent Morgan from seizing the city, and UNISOM had then fought SNA forces who tried to retake it. A second event, the Gaokayo Conference, was a proposed peace summit scheduled to be held in central Somalia. This conference was agreed to by General Aidid and Colonel Abdulali Yusuf of the Somali Salvation Democratic Front. Aidid sought to focus the conference on only on Somalia's central regions and soon ran into conflict with UNISOM. The UN sought to broaden participation of the conference to other regions of Somalia and, suspicious of Aidid, sought to replace his chairmanship over the conference with former Somali President Abdullah Osman, who hated Aidid and publicly called for his arrest. The differences between Aidid and the UN proved to be too great, and the conference proceeded without the United Nations' participation. The contention between the Somali National Alliance and UNISOM from that point forward would begin to manifest into anti-UNISOM propaganda broadcasts from SNA-controlled Radio Mogadishu. Radio Mogadishu was one of, if not the most popular radio station in Somalia during this period of unrest. Following the two events that we just discussed, this station would broadcast propaganda against the United Nations forces stationed in the country. United Nations personnel feared that this would lead to further distrust and deterioration of cooperation between SNA forces and UN peacekeeping forces. Even more important, Radio Mogadishu was an authorized weapons store site, which was subject to UN inspection at any time. In an effort to prevent the flow of propaganda to the general public, it was decided that seizing the station and halting the broadcasts was the only way to prevent further hostilities. Oh, how wrong the United Nations was. General Aidid was made aware of this inspection and believed this to be the UN working to seize one of the only propaganda vessels that the general possessed at this time. On June 6, 1993, SNA forces and Somali citizens attacked the contingent inspecting the station. The attack marked a seminal moment in the UNISOM II operation. The Pakistani forces suffered 24 dead and 57 wounded, as well as wounded one Italian and three wounded American soldiers. 
In response, on June 6, 1993, the outraged UN Security Council passed Resolution 837, a call for the arrest and prosecutions of the persons responsible for the death and wounding of the peacekeepers. Though Resolution 837 did not name General Aidid, it held the Somali National Alliance responsible. The hunt for Aidid became a major focus of the UN intervention through the Battle of Mogadishu. Admiral Jonathan Howe issued a $25,000 warrant for information leading to Aidid's arrest, while Unisom forces began attacking targets all over Mogadishu in hopes of finding him. The hunt for Aidid characterized much of the Unisom II intervention. The increasing tempo of military operations being carried out in Mogadishu caused civilian casualties and began to seriously affect the relationship between UN troops and the Somali people. Unisom forces were portrayed as foreign interlopers and imperialists, particularly after incidents of civilian casualties caused by wholesale firing into crowds by peacekeepers. Each major armed confrontation with Unisom was noted to have deleterious effects of increasing Aidid stature with the Somali public. While I wish I could tell you that UN forces would not use more advanced weapons of warfighting such as heavy weaponry, that's simply not the case. When the United States took over the majority of combat operations, it came at a price, and that was losing the trust of the Somali public. In the view of Professor Mats Berdahl of the Department of War Studies at King's College, the conduct of U.S. armed forces during this conflict demonstrated that the American military was not attenued to the requirements of low-level military operations that Somalia required at the time. He would argue that there is a distinctive mindset and approach to low-intensity operations which had been shaped by the American experience during and after Vietnam and by a deeply entrenched belief in the efficacy of technology and firepower as a means of minimizing one's own casualties. It is an approach that was inappropriate to the particular circumstances of Somalia. The United States is not one that is particularly comfortable engaging in prolonged low-energy combat operations. As a veteran, even though I didn't deploy, you are taught early on that the only way to win is to gain overwhelming fire superiority when engaging enemy combatant forces. This is very evident during the operations undertaken throughout Somalia that involve the use of attack helicopters, even in heavily congested areas. This is where we lead into what is believed to be the most significant event that turned the Somali aid mission into full-blown combat operations. Instead of aiding the Somali general public, the United States engaged in near-daily airstrikes and bombardments of SNA positions, further placing innocent Somali lives at risk and bringing them into their conflict further. One pivotal attack by UNISOM personnel would completely destroy any remaining trust and thrust the small skirmishes into a full-blown combat mission in Mogadishu. The Bloody Monday Raid, as it is known amongst the Somali population, was a ruthless attack by the United States AH-1 Cobra helicopters on a home where several clan leaders were meeting. UNISOM leadership claimed this raid to be successful. However, this attack completely shifted the dynamic on the ground in Mogadishu. Further criticism of the raid came from numerous contributing states such as Ireland, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and Zimbabwe, but most notably the Italian contingent who threatened to pull out of the whole operation a few days later, citing concerns that the escalation was indicative that the relief role of UNISOM II had been overtaken by an American-led campaign against Mohamed Farah Adid. The Italians, who had ruled Somalia as a colonial territory for half a century, believed that the unprecedented attack threatened to widen the civil war and turn the Somalis against the entire UN peacekeeping force. Due to this attack, Somali militias and civilian volunteers began engaging in small attacks against UNISOM personnel and the U.S. military forces on the ground. In a surprising turn of events, 
bipartisan support for a withdrawal of U.S. forces grew and calls for a diplomatic resolution increased. By August 1993, it was evident to the Clinton administration that a strategy shift was necessary to retain domestic support for U.S. involvement in Somalia. The shift was signaled earlier by Defense Secretary Les Aspen in his August 27th speech advocating for a decreased military focus in USAM II and urging the UN and the OAU to resume negotiations with all parties. But the U.S. Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor pushed for a shift towards diplomacy. However, this would all come to a screeching halt following a car bomb that would kill four American service members and would injure seven more. In response, President Bill Clinton would authorize Operation Gothic Serpent and the deployment of Task Force Ranger, a combined force of 441 soldiers composed of U.S. Army Rangers and Delta Force operators. In an effort to streamline the episode, instead of talking about the Battle of Mogadishu, that included women and children fighting alongside the militia against U.S. Army Special Force operators, I want to cover the effects and documented human rights abuses that occurred during the UNISOM missions and what life looks like to this very day, following the failure of these missions. Following the withdrawal of all U.S. and European armed forces, inquiries and reports began to circulate detailing human rights abuses. There are several cases of U.N.-aligned forces attacking hospitals with little regard to who may be within it, firing into crowds of protesters, and attacking buildings clearly marked by the IRC or International Red Cross emblems. As a result of the focus on combat operations rather than the initial humanitarian aid goal, it is estimated that only between 15 to 25,000 people of the over 100,000 civilians in need of aid actually received it. Civilian casualties directly caused by U.S. forces are estimated to have been between 7 and 10,000. This number was provided by CIA officials. Now, as we look at the effect that this has had on the development of Somalia, I don't believe it to be in any better of a position than when the Civil War first began back in 1991. Following the withdrawal of UN-aligned forces, peace did arrive and conflict gradually declined in the northwestern, ghetto, GEDO, and Shebel regions of the country. Idid continued to stoke violence in the southern portions of Somalia and in Mogadishu. However, he would be killed following combat in the Medina area. Between 2000 and 2010, several political changes took place, and while I would love to dive further into that, for the purposes of this episode, it's not relevant. In my opinion, the Civil War has been the direct antagonist of the country of Somalia from developing into a developed nation and placing further risk to safety and security of the civilian population. According to Necrometrics, around 500,000 people are estimated to have been killed in Somalia since the start of the Civil War in 1991. The armed conflict location and event data set estimates that 3,300 people were killed during the conflict in 2012, with the number of fatalities dropping slightly in 2013 to 3,150. The United Nations Assistance Mission in Somalia reported that at least 596 civilian casualties by August 2020. However, officials have struggled to maintain an accurate count due to flooding and COVID-19 deaths in the area. While I wish I could tell you that there is reconciliation on the horizon, I'm not 100% sure that will ever come as several warring factions continue to remain in control of certain regions. What I do know is that this civil war is one of the leading causes of the food insecurity crisis that we discussed last week, where over 20 million people across the Horn of Africa are facing acute food insecurity. Without an end in sight, people will continue to suffer and die as a result of the Somali civil war.
I want to thank you for listening this week. If you enjoyed the episode, be sure to leave a like and share the show with your friends. Next week, we're going to take a quick flight over to New Zealand and discuss the recent cyclone and subsequent flooding that devastated the country. Thank you once again for listening. This has been Destination Disaster. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.